0: the political divisions of the time, up until the 1980s. Uh, It started with a small structure of sandbags and barbed wire, and then it ended up being a permanent concrete monolith with guard towers, patrolling soldiers, wires. The wall grew into one of the most prominent political symbols of the 20th century. And that all came to a screeching halt when U.S. President Ronald Reagan came to Germany and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, which was a symbol of the tearing down of the political subdivisions between socialism and capitalism and political ideologies that separated a country. The tearing down of that wall was the tearing down of enmity between two political ideologies for which Ronald Reagan's quote was... Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall was somewhat of the catalyst that led to that wall being torn down. In our text today, we read of a wall being tear, torn down. Christ, verse fourteen, Ephesians two fourteen, it says, "He is our peace." Talking about Christ, what has he done? He's made both one, both Jew and Gentile one. He's made all of the nations one in a real sense. How did he do it? He broke down the middle wall of partition that was between us, the Berlin Wall, as it were. Christ tore it down on the cross, and so that's our title this morning. He is our peace. He is our peace, and so our outline is just going to go like this, so we'll start with verse 11 and read down through verse 12, before, before our peace. What was life like before our peace? and then the source of our peace. So before our peace, verses 11 and 12, and then the source of our peace, verse 13 through 18. So first, before our peace, Paul uses five phrases to characterize what life was like for the vast majority of the Gentile world before peace came. Now, what is a Gentile? That's people from Mississippi. That's people from Saudi Arabia. That's people from France that's people from the United Kingdom, that's people from Russia, that's people from El Salvador. That's just anyone who's not a Jew. If you, by and large, were not a Jew, this is what life looked like for you before peace came. Five characterizations. First, he says, you were in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. So why does he emphasize so much that that you were called uncircumcision by that which is the circumcision in the flesh made by hands? He emphasizes that circumcision in the flesh made by hands is not what's totally important. That was just a symbol of what was important, right? Because going back to the Mosaic covenant, God made a covenant with Moses and he said, um, whosoever believes on him, their belief, their faith, will be reckoned unto them for righteousness. And so the circumcision that God was always looking for was not in the flesh made by hands, it was a heart circumcision. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, on the 32nd chapter, God said, Circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. Like that's what God was always after. He was after a heart being transformed and a heart being given faith. He was after a heart that looked to God and trusted in God. And so what Paul is saying is, implicitly, he's implies, like, look, the, the, the circumcision that was in the flesh made by hands, that was never what was important. God was always after a circumcision of the heart. Nevertheless, there was alienation between you and the Jews. There was a wall of partition between you and the Jews. No, it was not because... You all were not um, circumcised, and they were. It was because the vast majority of the Gentile world did not have a circumcised heart. They had not turned to Christ. They were without Christ, and that was the issue. Because God has always been after a circumcised heart. A new heart will I give you in those days. A soft heart made of flesh, he would tell the prophet Ezekiel, and Ezekiel 36. And so that's what God was always after. So Gentiles, yes, I'm about to use five different phrases that characterize the vast majority of the Gentile world. But just know that the reason why there was a wall of partition between you and the Jews, it really wasn't because of a physical circumcision. It was because of a heart problem, which had these five manifestations in verse 12, you were without Christ, one. Two, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You were having no hope, and you were without God in the world. So for the reader, for the, whether Jew or Gentile, it wouldn't have been a surprise to hear that God is a God of peace, I mean, God had been revealing himself as the God of peace since the Old Testament. In the Bible, God kind of has a progressive revelation where he is, over time, revealing more and more about himself. In the New Testament, we, we see the gospel in the fullest, most clear light. But we have the gospel, we had glimpses of it in the Old Testament as well, and we had glimpses into the character of God. God called himself the God of peace to Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 13. Now, the context here was Gideon was at war with the Midianites because, uh, remember, in Judges, the, the the children of Israel were told to, to kill all those enemy nations and to drive them out of the land. And why did God tell them to do that? Because God knew that those pagan nations would have a bad influence on uh his people, chosen people, the Jews. And so God has chosen Gideon to be the vessel that will go out and win a great war over the Midianites and thereby conquer the land and bring peace in the promised land. So an angel appears to Gideon in Judges chapter 6 verse 13 to give Gideon hope that he would be victorious in this war against the Midianites, even though he had less resources, less men, and was just a kind of a weak person. So the angel said to Gideon, Be at peace, you mighty man of valor, and then in verse thirteen, And Gideon said unto him, the angel, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? Where be all the miracles which our fathers told us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. So I will say, a lot of times when we see the word angel in the Old Testament, I think that's talking about a pre-incarnation picture of Christ, or a, a, it's talking about a Christ or the Lord speaking to people before His first coming. And so Gideon here speaks with the Lord as uh, He's bringing a message, and Gideon is not feeling any peace at all. He's like. God, if you're with us, if we're your chosen people, why have all these horrible things happened to us? Why are my circumstances so bad? But then in verse 23, the Lord speaks peace to Gideon, and he says this, The Lord said unto Gideon, Peace be unto thee. Fear not. Thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. You know what Shalom means? is the Hebrew word for peace. I feel peaceful just saying that word, something about the word shalom. So God is a God of peace, and he's been revealing himself as a God of peace since the days of Gideon in the Old Testament. He was Jehovah Shalom. He was the Lord, our peace. And what comforting words when he says, you're not going to die. I'm going to give you a great victory. I'm Jehovah Shalom. So it's not surprising to anybody Even the reader back here in the days when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians that God is a God of peace. The surprise comes in when he says he is our peace. He's not just the peace of the Jews. Now he's peace to Jews and Gentiles. God is a God of peace to everyone that calls on him. What if God would have said to Gideon, okay now see that Midianite over there? I'm going to regenerate his heart, I'm going to draw him to faith in me, and now that Midianite is going to be your brother. Now, that would have been crazy. That would have been a surprise. That's what Paul is saying here when he says he is our peace. God is our peace. He's broken down the middle wall partition between the Jews and the Midianites in the New Testament age. So, now, now, the People like the Midianites, people like Mississippians like us, were no longer without Christ. But what does it mean to be without Christ? Well, first, that means by and large that the Gentiles were without eternal life. because to know Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 17, the opening verses, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life? This is eternal life, that they might know me, who's me, Jesus Christ. And then 1 John chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. This is the testimony that God has given us, even eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whosoever has the Son has life. So in this context, whosoever has the Son, they have eternal life. Because this is the testimony that God has given us. Like, this is what God has given to those who believe on Jesus. They've, he's given them eternal life. And so God's testimony is the believer in Christ has eternal life. Now remember, the Gentiles before peace were without Christ. What does that mean? They didn't have Christ. Whosoever has the Son has eternal life. Going back to 1 John 5, 12. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. They do not have eternal life. These things have I written unto you that you might believe in the name of the Son of God. So now we know what it means to have the Son. It means you believe on Him. And that you might know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue, there's the perseverance of the saints, to believe in the name of the Son of God. So God has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. His testimony is those who believe in Jesus, have eternal life. Those who have the Son have life. Those who don't have the Son, those who don't believe in the name of the Son of God, they don't have eternal life. And so by and large, the Gentiles were without Christ. They were without eternal life. But it also means in this life, they were without peace. They are without peace. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22 says, There is no peace unto the wicked. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you, you you look out in the world, and, and you may watch uh, movie stars on television, or these pro athletes that have so much money, and you know they literally uh, they could they could there some of these pro athletes that could tweet on Twitter like I, you know I love these new shoes that I bought, and then they they could make five hundred thousand dollars you know just from from Nike for just putting out that tweet, or. You just you see rich people or people that you think are prospering or these powerful politicians and you're like they've got to have so much peace, there's so much stability there, there's so much success there, or at least like a little bit, like at least they gotta lay on their head lay on their pillow at night and think yeah you know it's been a rough day but you know I can tweet right now and get two hundred thousand dollars from Nike or you know it's been a rough day but my bank account is solid. If they don't have Christ, if they're they're without Christ, if they don't believe in the the name of the only begotten Son of God, like, make no question in your mind, they are without peace. The Bible says there is no peace unto the wicked. And so before Christ, before Christ came into your heart by faith, there was no peace for you. There There was no peace for me. Psalm thirty-seven, verses thirty-five through thirty-seven. Listen to what David writes. He says, "I've seen the wicked in great power, spreading himself out like a Green Bay tree." What I picture here—this this is probably just because I have a weird brain—but I'm picturing them just spreading themselves out on a on a sofa, watching some you know college football, just comfortable, comfortable lifestyle. They're spreading themselves out like the roots of a Green Bay tree. Were like. And I'm not. I'm not really good at forestry, but I know that there's some trees. Their roots spread out like this, and some go straight down. The green bay tree. Apparently, its roots went out. They stretch out, plenty of space. I'm doing things my way, like Frank Sinatra said. And I'm just. I'm just having. A, I'm just having a good life. Or at least. That's how things would appear. Now, David said, I've seen the wicked. They're comfortable. They're spreading themselves out on the couch. They're watching college football. Their bank account's good, and they're, you know, making thousands of dollars for tweets, um, tweeting about products. Yet he passed away. He was not. I sought him, but I couldn't find him. Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-six. And then David says this, Mark the perfect man. You know what perfect means? It means upright or just. You know who's upright or just? The believer on Jesus Christ. That's the only person who God looks at and says, you're upright, you're just. That's what God was teaching in Romans 4 through Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness, for being just, for being upright, for being whole. That's what perfect here does not mean, never make a mistake. It means you're whole, you're entire, you're right, you're justified. You're complete. The only man who's perfect in this context is the believer on Jesus Christ. David says, you mark that man. You mark the, the man who is whole and entire and complete in Christ. The end of that man is peace. It's peace. But there is no peace to those who are without Christ. It says you were strangers from the covenants of promise. What were some of the covenants of promise? Well, God made multiple covenants in the Old Testament. First, he made the Abrahamic covenant. And I've been confused sometimes about how the covenants relate to each other. You have the Abrahamic covenant, just to name three. You have the Mosaic covenant, and then you have the New Covenant, so what was the Abrahamic covenant? That was the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verses 17 and 18. Now in this same chapter is where, where Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or counted to him for righteousness. And God made a covenant with Abraham, and he said, I'm going to make your, your offspring like the sand of the seas for multitude." And what the text will go on to explain and what Paul will further explain in Romans 4 is that all of those that believe in me are going to have eternal life. And Abraham, I'm going to give you a seed, not not of physical Jews, I'm going to give you a seed of believers. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. El Salvador, of the United States, out of Spain, out of China. I'm going to make you a father of all of those who believe in me. Like, that's the covenant that Abraham makes with Moses. You're going to be a father in the faith of all of the people who hereafter believe on my name. And this is what God did with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. It came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. It's, the, it's, animal, it's pieces. It's, pieces of animal carcass. In that same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river Euphrates. God made a covenant with Abraham that all those who believe on him their faith would be reckoned unto him for righteousness and the covenant went it went beyond the land promises. It went into promises of eternal life, and that's clear when you look in the context of the full chapter. But did you notice that Abraham never passed between those pieces? So th- th- there is a form. Of, we, we have contracts. In America now we have contracts, we have documents, we write them, and both parties will sign. Both parties entering into the contract will sign. Well, back in those days, a way that they entered into a contract, it's, it's kind of strange, they would rip up animal carcasses, and both parties would walk between the carcasses, And that was how you made a contract, or a covenant. And it was basically saying, if I fail on my word, if I don't hold up my end of the contract, you consider me like these animals, dead. God himself passed between the pieces. Did you see that? God, in the form of a burning lamp, he passed between those pieces. God's promise, the covenant of promise to Abraham was... I am making a covenant with you to give you a seed of believers on my name. I'm the one who's going to, I'm the author of faith, so I'm the one who's going to create faith in these people's hearts. I'm the one who's going to keep faith in these people's hearts, and I'm the one who's going to hold up this covenant, and you're going to have nothing to do with it. Because salvation is totally of the Lord. If you look in the context, Abraham had actually fallen asleep, it appears. You look at verse 12. And so in the Abrahamic covenant, it was a covenant of promise because God himself made a promise to Abraham, I am going to make you a father of many nations. By my sovereign grace, I'm going to create faith in the hearts of people all over the world and everyone who believes on me, their faith will be reckoned to them for righteousness and I'm going to keep their faith and it's going to be nothing to do with you, Abraham. It's going to be nothing to do with them or how good they are, but it's everything to do with my power and that's why I'm the one passing between the pieces and not you then the mosaic covenant is when the law was given on mount sinai so god would say in exodus 19:5 now therefore if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine so this is kind of confusing Because did you notice that God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis that was totally of grace? God was the only one who signed that contract. But now he's telling the people in the day of Moses on Mount Sinai, you have to obey my voice and keep my covenant. You have a responsibility here. But in the New Testament, It is revealed to us in Galatians chapter 3, around the 26th verse. The law, what's that? The Mosaic Covenant. That was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It was never supposed to bring people salvation. It was always supposed to show people their need of a Savior. So we have the Abrahamic Covenant of grace, the Mosaic Covenant to lead people to Christ, and then the New Covenant as the last of the covenants of promise we'll look at. The new covenant is explained in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32, where God says through Jeremiah, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, not according to the Mosaic covenant. In that day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they break, Although I was a husband to them. God's new covenant, this is that righteousness only comes by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the Mosaic covenant was not, it was never to bring salvation, it was just to show people their need of a Savior for which that Savior is most clearly revealed in the new covenant. So the new covenant is really just a more of an explanation of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God made with Abraham was that salvation is by grace. All those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the new covenant is just further revealing that truth. And the Mosaic covenant was always to show people their need of a savior. But for the Gentiles, the vast majority of the Gentiles' world, they were strangers from all of these covenants. They didn't know about them. They weren't... um, Aware of, of these covenants and didn't seem to be a part of them. They were strangers. They had no hope. They had no hope. Before peace came, there was no hope. Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, whatsoever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So what's the source of hope? It's the scriptures. It's the patience. If, we, if it, it's... It's going back to the scriptures patiently, not just one time or two times, but like consistently over the long haul, going to the scriptures and reading the scriptures. like That's where we have hope. And so because the vast majority of the Gentile worlds didn't have the scriptures, they didn't have hope because the scriptures are the source of hope. So they were without Christ. They were strangers from the covenants of promise, and they were with, having no hope, which, you know, hope we have as an anchor of the soul. We have to have a... If you, if you didn't have any hope today, you would have no peace. They, they come together. So we were without Christ, and I think he says we were without Christ first because everything else kind of flows from that. If you're without Christ, you're a stranger from the covenants of promise because the covenants of promise were always to lead people to Christ. Even the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The Abrahamic covenant said, whosoever believes on God, their faith is reckoned to them for righteousness. The new covenant says, Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And it's just kind of a renewal of of the covenant made with Abraham. But if you're without Christ, you're outside of all those covenants. You have no hope because Christ is the source of hope. And you're without God in the world. Now, it's not like they were without God's common grace, right? There's a sense in which God, he makes the rain fall on the just and on the unjust. Acts chapter 14, verse 17, Paul here talking about the Gentile world before, um, before, God was revealing himself to the Gentiles in large part. God says he left himself not without a witness and that he, God did good and he gave Gentiles rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. But before these people knew Christ, when they were without Christ, they were without God in the world in the sense That they were apart from God's saving grace. John chapter 3 verse 36 says, He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life. They shall not see everlasting life. But the wrath of God abideth on them. As present participle. So it's a past completed action, ongoing into the future. The person who does not believe on the Son, they're under God's wrath. And so you Gentiles, you all were without Christ, You were strangers from the covenants of promise. You were without God in the world. You didn't have any hope because of all of this. And this is all evidenced by the fact that you didn't believe in the Son, and it's from the Son that people have everlasting life. So they were without God's saving grace because for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves. It's God's gift. But you all, before you knew Christ, were without God in the world because you were without Christ. Because God says, no man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me, draw him. And then John said, Jesus said in John 14, verse 2, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except by Jesus Christ. So these people were without Christ, they were strangers from the covenants of promise and from the commonwealth of Israel. They didn't have hope, and they were without God in the world. And all of those are just, all of those things are really just the result of the fact that these people didn't believe in Jesus Christ. That's why I think Paul puts you were without Christ first. You didn't know Jesus Christ. You didn't trust in him. And so as a result of that, you didn't have hope. You, you were without God in the world because Christ is the only way to get to God. And you were strangers from the covenants of promise because all those covenants were pointing people to Jesus Christ, who is our peace. And so now we turn to the source of peace. The source of peace is Jesus Christ. That's what it says in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off, now you're made nigh by the blood of Christ. Paul loves these like bursts of light that he gives these often. Paul loves transition words, and I love to read them. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you're saved. That's, we have to have that. We have to hold on to that. That is the Bible. Salvation is totally by grace. If anyone believes on Jesus Christ, it's because they've been quickened together with him. God is totally sovereign in regeneration. Regeneration is completely a work of the Holy Spirit apart from human means. God has to make people alive together with Christ. We can't do that. We can't make people alive. But God, who is rich in mercy, can make people alive, and he does. And now he's making Gentiles alive in vast numbers because he's rich in mercy. And now, a bunch of all you people from nations all over the world who were sometimes far off, now you're being made nigh by the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ being personally applied to you in regeneration. He is our peace. He's broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So this is horizontal reconciliation. Because notice what he's saying. This is a middle wall of partition that was between us. So now, all you Gentile nations, you're made nigh by the blood of Christ. And now there's reconciliation happening in our relationships. He's he's brought you nigh, and he broke down the middle wall of partition between us. This is that Berlin Wall. So, how did he do this? How did God break down the middle wall of partition? Well, the text tells us. Having, verse 14, abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The law of commandments. So it's not that the law was bad. It's that we couldn't do the law. And that humans twist the law to serve ourselves. So, for example, Paul said in Romans chapter 7, the, 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 commandment, the, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, it's holy, it's just, it's good. He says, but sin took occasion in me and by the commandment slew me. That's Romans 7 around the 20th verse. So it's Paul's own sin that's the problem. It's not, it's not the Mosaic Covenant. It's not God's law that's bad. It's our sin, which prevents us from being able to, to, to do the law. And what humans actually do is we try to use the law, rather, rather than to, to, to lead us to Christ, you know, apart from God's grace, we try to use the law to justify ourselves. Okay, And when we start justifying ourselves based off our works, this creates a culture of distance between others. Now, the Jews, they had run up a big score on the Gentiles when it comes to doing the works of the law, because they had the law. The, the Gentiles, they didn't have the law given to them. The Jews had it, and many of them, were sticklers to try to keep that law to a T. Like, we're, gonna do, we're doing all the right sacrifices, we're doing all the good works that we need to do, and um, the Jews would look at that big score they had run up on the Gentiles, and they would say, this is why we're better than you. And so they're twisting the law, and they're misusing it. And so there's, part, there's, there's hostility in our relationships, not because the law is bad, but because we're bad, and because we use the law in the wrong way. This is what the Pharisee did in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 13. Notice here that we see two men, a Pharisee and a publican, and we see a case study on how the law can ruin our relationships when we use it in the wrong way. Jesus here, speaking to a group of people, notice how Christ characterizes the people to whom he gives the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, Luke 18, verse nine. Christ spoke this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So I trust in myself that my works are good enough, my keeping of the law of commandments contained in ordinances. This is what makes me good and right before God. And so I need to make you look worse. I need to make you look small so that I look better, right? That, that's, that's really what happens. And that sounds so familiar. And that, that's what we do all the time. When we, we try to make others feel bad, others feel small so that we feel better. Like That's kind of our fleshly tendency. And so that's why trusting in ourselves that we're righteous often leads to despising, disregarding, mistreating others. So Jesus is speaking this parable to people that trusted in themselves that, that, that they were keeping the law of commandments contained in ordinances to a T which was leading to despising others in their relationships. He says, two men, this is Luke uh, 18, 10, two men went into the temple and they prayed. The one was a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and he prayed with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like this, this guy here. Or maybe, I, I'm, I'm so thankful that I'm not like the Gentiles who are you know, without Christ, they're strangers, we hate those people, they have no hope, and they're, they're, they're without you. I'm thankful that I'm not like those Gentiles over there. Or in this case, I'm thankful I'm not like this publican. The Pharisee stood and he prayed. Um, he said he said this in verse 13. I I, I twice, I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything that I possess. This is mishandling the law. Like this type of malpractice with the law of commandments contained in ordinances like this is why there's enmity happening in our relationships because we're using the law to justify ourselves and to trust in our keeping of the law which then leads to us putting other people down. The law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ but without God's saving grace imparted to our hearts we're use, we're going to commit me- legal malpractice every time. Republican stood afar off. This is Luke 18, 13. And he, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes unto heaven, but just smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what Jesus said? That man went home justified. You know why? Because the law led him to Christ. The law was his schoolmaster. Because God, you know why? You know why he viewed the law in that way? Because God is rich in mercy. And because God, God had made that man alive together with Christ. He, that God had quickened that publican. And he had made him alive together with Christ. Because God is rich in mercy. And so now he saw himself as a sinner in need of a savior. And he saw that Christ was his peace. He saw that Christ was his peace with God. And that Christ, in the, the shed blood of Christ on the cross was everything to him as it relates to his righteousness, his salvation, his, his, his good standing before God. And he knew that he was a sinner. The gospel basically is just this, we're sinners in need of a savior, and Christ is that savior. And the cross is a signpost to human history giving just that message, and the publican saw that, and that's why he went home justified but the pharisee was committing legal malpractice he was using the law in the in the wrong way to justify himself and that's why enmity is formed in relationships and that's what paul's getting at here christ broke down going back to our text Ephesians 2:14 he broke down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity what was creating enmity in our relationships the law of commandments contain in ordinances. Not, not because it's bad, Paul said. It's holy, it's just, it's good. But I am unholy, I'm unjust, I'm bad. And so I'm going to misuse the law every time, just like the Pharisee did, until God makes me alive together with Christ. Then and only then will the law fulfill its right purpose of being a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. But until that point... The law just creates enmity in our relationships because we misuse it. But Christ is our peace. He's broken down that wall. And you know what that means for us? So this is a practical application. Horizontal reconciliation in our relationship. In this context, it's reconciliation across racial lines. Jews were racist. Do you know that Paul was actually in prison, in the in. When he, you know, Paul was in prison when he wrote the book of Ephesians. You can see the reason why he was taken to prison in Acts 21, verse 28. He was accused of bringing a Greek into the temple. So the Jews hated the Gentiles so much, they were so racist, that they threw Paul in prison, at least in part, because they thought he had brought a Gentile into their temple. Like, there is a wall between us. There is a Berlin wall between us, and we don 't want those people even come into our building. There were stories of Jewish midwives who would not they, they would not work for Gentile mothers because they were so afraid of bringing another Gentile into the world. They hated the Gentiles. I read a story um, not long ago about uh, an African American woman who went to a, a multi ethnic church in Memphis. And she had, uh, she, and back in the 60s, she'd you know, worked in, in homes of, of white people, and she had took, taken care of their kids, and she was there when Martin Luther King Jr. was giving his speeches and during the riots. And um, the, pa- the pastor of this church, was called Fellowship Memphis, the pastor of this church is Brian Loretus, i be saying his name wrong. And this, this woman, this black woman, came up to him, and she was crying. And she said, I've waited my entire life to see a multi-ethnic church. And you have been the answer to that prayer. And Brian said this, I don't think she heard a thing that I was preaching about that day. But she saw the gospel displayed in the church before she ever heard it preached. And that changed her. And I'm not saying this to make us feel bad. I'm not saying this to make us feel guilty. But when we look at our text... The church is composed of multiple ethnicities. And so our churches in America do not, um, do not do not give a picture, do not totally fulfill the picture that is being given of the New Testament church. Because the New Testament church, the, the wall partition is broken down. He says, the Gentiles, the nations, are now fellow heirs. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter uh, three, verse four. There, there's been a mystery that's been hidden for ages, but in Ephesians three four, God is going to reveal the mystery, and what and this mystery concerns salvation and it concerns the church. It says, "Whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." What is the what's the mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of God's promise in Christ by the gospel. So, the person reading this to the Jew, this is crazy. It's like the Gentiles shouldn't even come into our temple. We don't want them here. They worship separately. But the the mystery of Christ that's been hidden for ages is that the nations, you know, the, the, the Greek word for Gentiles is nations. The nations are now fellow heirs and partakers of the same body in Christ. And so, this picture of the New Testament church is a church that crosses multi-ethnic lines. And In America today, it is still true that one of the most segregated hours of the week is Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. And that is not the way that it should be, because that is not the picture of the New Testament church because Christ breaks down the wall of partition between the ethnicities between the races and the mystery of Christ is that the nations people from El Salvador, people from Kenya, people from the United States, people from China, we're now fellow heirs like all those who believe on Jesus Christ were fellow heirs and were partakers of God's promise. How? By the gospel. It's by the gospel that people become unified it's by the gospel and only by the gospel that people become partakers of God's promise in Christ. And what's that promise? That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Whosoever. Doesn't matter what country you're from. And the new testament church is supposed to be a multi-ethnic place where walls of partition are broken down. And I don't and I do not think we're totally I don't think we're fully we're feeling that fully and completely yet in the American church in 2023. Because the New Testament church is one where the walls of partition are broken down. And this breaking down only comes by the cross. Listen, look at the verse 13. It was by the cross. Those three words are huge. The cross, it as a signpost in the middle of human history. And it's telling us really just two things. Humanity is an enmity with God. And Jesus Christ is the way to peace by the cross. The cross is the only way that we're going to have reconciliation horizontally in our relationships with others, and it's the only way that we're going to have reconciliation vertically, right? And it's not just across ethnic and racial lines. It could be white-collar workers and blue-collar workers, uh, fishermen and golfers. It could be city people and country folk. Like, in the lunchroom, we may kind of gravitate towards people that look like us or that had the same interests as us, or that just we are, we're we're comfortable with, but the gospel breaks down the middle walls of partition and our relationships to the granular level in the lunchroom. We, if we're both believers in Jesus Christ, like we have everything in common that we need to have in common to have a close relationship by the cross. And do you know that He also says there's reconciliation with God. So there's subjective reconciliation in our relationships, but then vertically, he reconciles us to God. This is objective. This is outside of, you may not feel peace right now, you may have a heart that's just full of anxiety, but this is a type of reconciliation that's outside of you. This is a type of peace that's outside of you. Like, you're at peace with God, point blank, period. Period. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how you feel. You may have messed up this week. You may have had a, just a horrible week where you felt no peace with God whatsoever. But if you're a believer today, you're at peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Objectively. It doesn't matter how you feel. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God. And Christ came and preached peace to you, which were far off, and to them that were nigh. So God objectively, he he put you in a place where you're at peace with God. You notice how Paul said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God? My granddad always used to say, Brother Sonny Piles, if you would see the word therefore in the Bible, you needed to ask, what was therefore, therefore? Well, in Romans chapter 4, Paul has been talking about sin and the need for reconciliation with God. And it's the the reason why people need to be reconciled to God is because we're sinners. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4 verse 8, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness on Jews only or upon Gentiles as well? I'm paraphrasing to go with our text for today. That's Romans 4 9. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Okay, now skipping forward to Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, being reckoned righteous in the sight of God, not based off our works, but based off faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's outside of you. doesn't matter how you feel right now. So there's objective peace. It doesn't matter how you feel, but then there's also subjective peace in your mind. Christ came and he preached, he, he heralded. Christ gave the good news of peace to you in the gospel. You notice who says that Christ preached? You may be thinking, Well, it wasn't Christ, it was Brother David or it was um, it was it was you know Isaac Guess, it was, you know, Brother Tim McCool, it was, it, was, it was a preacher, right? It was a preacher that I heard preaching peace. But here it says that Christ is the one that preached peace to you. And I think the reason why it says this is because, thank God, despite our efforts being broken and despite our efforts being not good enough, Christ is able to speak through people because this is, this is the word of Christ. This is God's word. This is what Christ has to say to us. So as long, even if it's a broken, sinful person like me up here saying it, if they're proclaiming the word of God to you, that's Christ speaking. And when the Holy Spirit comes down and applies the word of God effectually, like Christ does that. I don't do that. Listen to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you to salvation. Who's you? Gentiles, From the beginning. The plan of God was always to bring Gentiles into uh, into salvation. Through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto, this is why, for this purpose, because God chose you Gentiles, you Thessalonians who were without Christ, you, you Thessalonians who were strangers in the covenants of promise, you, you Thessalonians who were without God in the world, God from the beginning chose to save you through sanctification of spirit and belief of the truth, and this is why he called you by the gospel. Yes, God may have had some preacher there that was like Paul or, 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 or uh, Titus or um, Timothy. Yes, it may have been a vessel. But do you notice it was... God that called you by the gospel. It wasn't us, it was God. So God's totally sovereign in regeneration, but he's also sovereign in conversion by the gospel, because God is the one calling people by the gospel, and God is the one who is preaching peace to people, because it takes God's word hitting the heart effectually to actually do anything. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Paul would say this, He was talking about himself as an ambassador for Christ. And he was said, We'll start in verse 18. It says that all things are of God. This is Second Corinthians five, eighteen. He's reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and then he's given us the preachers, the apostles, the prophets. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation to wit he said i'm just going to uh, expl- to witness means explaining a little more to explain a little more what i'm saying is god was in christ reconciling the world unto himself that's vertical reconciliation he's 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 bringing people all over the world into a peaceful relationship with god all those who believe on jesus christ are at peace with god not imputing their trespasses unto them but listen to this. He's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So because God, by his sovereign grace, has reconciled you to himself, now you reconcile yourself to God. You submit your life to him. You live a life of obedience. We, we're, we're beseeching you. Now then, it's the second we're 520, we're ambassadors for Christ as if God did beseech you through us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So you know who's really preaching here? God is. Christ is beseeching people. God is the one who calls people by the gospel because only God can truly make his word effectual. And so Christ came and he preached the message of peace to you, which gives you peace in your minds. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, not the peace that this world gives that that depends on circumstances and depends on how you did this week. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. God leaves peace with us. Christ preached peace to you. So if you're feeling troubled today, if you're feeling anxious, know that Christ is your peace. And the peace he leaves with you is not the peace that this world gives. It doesn't depend on circumstances. Remember where we started today? Gideon was so afraid, and he said, God, if you really love us, if we're really your people, why are you letting all these bad things happen to me? Why, Why are you allowing the Midianites to invade our land? And then God's messenger said to him, Do not be afraid, you mighty man of valor. You shall not die for I am the Lord, your peace. Jehovah Shalom. The peace that I leave with you, Gideon, is not as this world gives. It doesn't depend on circumstances. It depends on Jesus Christ. He is our peace. Christ is our peace. He's our peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Like if you believe on Jesus Christ, you're at peace with God. He loves you. You're going to be in heaven, point blank, period. doesn't matter how you felt or how you feel or how you will feel. Because God's going to keep your faith. God made a covenant with Abraham that he would keep people's faith. He wouldn't let your faith die. So God, Christ, Jesus, is our peace vertically with God. He also brings peace in our relationship. He's broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He's made it possible for us to, To become brothers and sisters in Christ with people from all over the world. And so he brings horizontal peace in our relationships. He brings vertical peace with himself by the cross. There's no peace with God without the cross, without Jesus' sacrificial death for our sins on the cross. And then he came and preached peace to you subjective peace. He leaves you peace today. And he says, do not be afraid, you shall not die. I'm Jehovah Shalom, I'm the Lord, your peace. And this peace is not just to Jews, it's not just to Baptists in southern Mississippi, this peace is to everyone across the world that believes on Jesus Christ. The Gentiles, the nations, their fellow heirs were partakers, I want to get it right, what does it say here? were fellow heirs, this is Ephesians 3, 6, of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. He brings peace, he's, Christ is preaching peace now to the nations. He came and preached peace to the nations, to those that were afar off and to those that were nigh. For through Christ we both have access by one spirit unto the Father that brings me. Have you ever been on an airplane before? And people all kind of bond on the airplane because it's like, well, we, people, I mean, at least I, I had a lot of experience on airplanes last summer when I went to India and, and walls are just coming down. People are asking me about you know, these questions that are pretty personal questions and I'm doing the same thing with them. And you know why we're bonding? Because we all, we, that plane is our only point of access. This may be a bad example, <laughs> but we're all bonding because th- this is our only point of access. Well, that's what happens with Christ. Like, the reason why people that are far off and people that are nigh, and what is that? That's like practical, I mean, here we know it. People who are nigh are Jews, far off are Gentiles. But practical application for us, those that are far off, these are these are the drug addicts. These are the the, the homosexuals, the prostitutes, the people covered in tattoos over their entire body. And then those that are nigh, these are the people who just, who just it's pretty good. They grew up in church or religious from South South Mississippi, where it's just a societal expectation that you go to church. Those people, both of those groups, the problem is not being far off or being nigh, it's being dead or being alive, right? God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And that's the issue. It's not that you were far off or that you were nigh, it's that you were dead. You were dead in sins, but then Christ made you alive together with Christ. And God can do that to people that are far off. The drug addicts, the homosexuals, prostitutes. And he can and does do that with people that are nigh. And we all, we, we need to be made alive. It doesn't matter how righteous you are. If Christ has not touched our hearts and, and, and quickened us together with Christ, it doesn't matter if we're far off or nigh, we're dead. But Christ preaches peace to both groups. And he brings peace horizontally in our relationships. He brings peace vertically with God. And he brings peace to you in your mind. So if you are distressed today and have just feeling without hope and feeling like there's just no light at the end of the tunnel, take comfort in these words. He is our peace. Thank you for your kind attention. Brother David, you'll come lead us in a hymn.